0: Um, in Paul's day is, was proclaimed. And when the gospel was proclaimed, people responded to the gospel, and they were changed, transformed. And then thirdly, what happened was, is that once the gospel was proclaimed, once people responded, ultimately what began to take place is that society was actually reshaped. The very social building blocks uh, were actually reshaped. And Paul basically lists three major building blocks in culture and society that were being impacted and transformed and affected by gospel thinking, gospel transformation. We talked about how the marriage is reshaped, how family is reshaped, and how the workplace is also reshaped. So last week we looked at how the marriage is reshaped. Today, we're actually going to look at how the family is reshaped. Next week, we'll take a look at how the workplace or the work environment is actually reshaped by the gospel. So again, you need to understand this. Because the heart of that, the, at the end of the day, is really that we have a God that, yes, He cares about you as an individual. Absolutely. It's not less than that. But it's far more than that. Far more broader, global, bigger than that. That God actually cares about society as a, at large. God cares about families. God cares about our marriages. God cares about the work environment that we oftentimes will find ourselves engaged in. So the reality, the reason why this is so important and so elemental is because every single one of us, at some point, are going to be involved in any one of these three spheres, or maybe all three of them simultaneously. You know, you might at some point in your life be married and have a family and be working and you will somehow need to learn how the gospel affects or reshapes you and your environment that you're involved in in those areas. Otherwise, what ends up happening, the flip side is, is that it just, the, the gospel becomes impotent. It just becomes nothing more than a privatized religion that you have quietly, safely, tucked away in your heart that you do on a Sunday morning alone. It doesn't impact or affect your marriage. It doesn't change your family. It doesn't change or impact your workplace. And what I'm trying to say is that is not how God wired or designed for the gospel to work. The gospel is meant to bubble over. Think of it like a well just bubbling up, flowing over, splashing. Anybody who gets near it is going to get wet. It's the way the gospel is supposed to work out and begin to move its way out. So I want to begin to take a look at this. And so I want to ask you a question before we jump in. Because, again, like I said, we'll be talking about the the relationship of the family, But in particular, what's really important that I want to kind of lead with or ask the question to stem off with is this question of when you hear the word father, what comes to your mind? When you hear the word father, what comes to your mind? Do you think happy thoughts? Do you think uh, something that brings a smile to your face? Do you think of good memories or to the opposite? Do you think of pain, tragedy, hurt, loss, discouragement, abandonment? Um, what comes to your mind when you think about a father? In fact, most sociologists would agree that probably one of the most primary and most important relationships you will have in your life is the relationship with your father. For better or for evil? For good or for evil? And what I mean by that is that a father, even if a father was absent or not there, maybe he was there physically but not there emotionally or engaged in an emotional type of way... That lack of relationship can also have a very radical negative impact upon our lives. But conversely, father can have a very positive impact upon a child. Change their life, change the way they think, change the way they act, change the way they live. By basically how he lives and how he operates within the family. So Paul knows this, so he begins to talk about this. Now for some of us, I realize that probably for most of us, in fact, uh, you're, not, you're not married and you don't have children. And the idea of having children is the last thing on your radar screen. It may not even, might not even register on your radar screen because it's the furthest, furthest thing from your mind. And that's fine. But what I want to encourage you to do is to resist the temptation to just simply forget about everything that we're talking about. Or you might have kids that are a little bit older. And for in your mind and your thinking is like they're already old and they are not necessarily going to be interacted or affected by this so I can tune out. What I want to challenge you to think about is that in reality, every one of us in this room have parents. We have a father. We have a mom. We have a uh, some form of a um, uh, someone that has watched us or raised us in our life, some form of a guard or a guardian that has kind of led us, uh, or a grandma, a grandpa, or an uncle, or somebody in our life that has actually had an impact upon our lives for good or for evil. And so Paul is going to be talking about and addressing this role of family as we begin to take a look at this. This is important. Because statistically, I'll give you a nice little statistic, kind of like I did last week, 81% of all men, all men, so that means that, Uh, 81% of all of you men in this room, at some point, you will have a child in your life. That means that there will be someone in your life that will look at you and call you dad. And if you don't feel the weight of that, you should. You should realize the importance of that reality of someone at some point being a dependent upon you. Uh, I think the statistic is around 86% of all women will at some point have a child. And so the point that I would make is this is radically relevant for every single one of us because according to statistics, the majority of us will have children at some point in our lives or even more importantly, every single one of us right now, by virtue of being here, are kids. We have a mom and dad, someone over us, someone that we've had some form of a relationship with. So this is really relevant and I want to begin to take a look at this. So I want to begin by reading two verses. Uh, one, we'll take a look at the passage in Colossians. But then we'll take a look at a complementary passage of this in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So let's begin. We'll read Colossians chapter 3 beginning at verse 20. Then we'll jump into Ephesians chapter 6. It says this. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, the next Verse that we'll take a look at is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What I want to do first, real quickly, is I want to just kind of break that down. Or in other words, big theological Bible concept, theologian language, I want to exposit this, all right? Um, Typically, the way we do this at a church, as a church, I should say, we take passages in the Bible, or we take the uh, books in the Bible, and we read them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and the reason why we do this, because when the Bible speaks to us, uh, we are to be ones that listen to it, and let God inform our minds as to who he is, rather than us reading into the text, we let the text read into us. It's not so much that we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. And so I want to take a moment and just let the text speak for itself and make a couple observations, and then we'll begin to unpack it. So first of all, we'll look at three things very fast. One, it addresses children. There is an instruction for children to follow, and here's what children are to do. In those two parallel passages, one, children are to obey, children are to honor. Some are like, what is that in the Greek? In the Greek, the word obey is "obey." All right, uh, honor in the Greek, the word is honor. It's, 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 it's very just face value is what it meant, what it means, and what it's intended for us is that to obey and honor moms and dads. The second thing we'll take a look at are fathers. There's a negative charge that Paul gives, and to the negative, he basically says fathers don't provoke, don't frustrate, don't do things that antagonize or crush Or oppress your children. We'll unpack that more in a moment. There's a positive instruction that Paul gives. He says, but instead, discipline them. Raise them up. Nurture them in the ways of God. By way of discipline and instruction. So there's a negative and there's a positive. Which we'll unpack more in just a moment. And then the third and final thing. With regard to just simple overview of the text. Is Paul is then finally going to point out. That all of this is to be done in a Christ centered way. Now, almost every single scholar or theologian or commentator that I read on this will basically tell you that up until this point, what Paul has said, meaning, you know, kids, honor, obey your mom and dad. Um, Dads, you know, stop frustrating your kids and giving them a headache and instead nurture them. None of that is unique. None of it. In fact, it had already been being done for hundreds of years, not just by Jewish cultures, but by lots of cultures. That was being that was basically the standard in the Greco slash Roman world. That was just the way that the family household worked. But what is unique with Paul and the New Testament and the Gospel is that everything gets reoriented around Christ. So for example, Paul will say something like this children, honor your moms and dads in the Lord. The idea is you don't just simply do everything they tell you to do every single time, even if it's wrong. You do it within the parameters of being in the Lord. And I think the bigger picture, the big idea really that kind of is at the heart of all this is that the family, the household is to be reoriented around, reshaped around Jesus. It's to have the shape and the form of Christ. That's the picture that I think Paul is basically trying to get across to us to think about. In other words, there is an organization within the family. There's an organization within the family that the father's, are to be the heads of the household. They're to take responsibility. Now, again, we realize that in a lot of ways in our culture, that seems very backwards. It seems very old-fashioned because in a lot of ways, we've seen a breakdown within the family. And in some cases, it just doesn't function that way. Mothers are single moms that need to rise up. And I believe that there is special grace by God to single moms to do what they need to do. I salute, I honor, I commend single moms. Their job is not easy. God loves you. God blesses you. God gives you strength. All right, but at the end of the day, God's original plan, his his desire, was for there to be a man within that house that, as as well a father, to lead, to nurture, to guide, to not frustrate the child within the raising up of that family. And so what we do see, like I said, is there's an order, there's an organization within that family household. And this is the organization. And it's all centered around, again, the man is not the final head of everything. Because again, this is where it's unique. Because in some ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, relationships or family households, the man would be the ultimate head leader over everything. But what Paul saying, nope, not true. It's Jesus. He's accountable ultimately to Jesus. So and again, I, I, look, we can talk a long time about how the church and how Christians throughout history have abused passages like this, have taken them out of context, and become basic pretext for how dads can be oppressive within their families, within their households. It's frustrating to me when I hear dads or fathers or Christian men taking verses like this out of context and saying, I'm the ultimate leader in the household and you, do have, you have to do everything I say. And there's no humility, there's no vulnerability, there's no, uh, just a, a sense of being real and transparent. But in reality, what is saying, that's not true. Christ, at the end of the day, is the ultimate head of the house. And the fathers, the dads, are ultimately under Christ. And so therefore, kids are also coming under the same headship of Jesus within the household. So this is where Paul's going to go, and that's the basic overview of the passage. So what I want to do this morning, is I want to take a look at three things. Because we talk a little bit about the idea of, Uh, provoking the children. But I want to also look at, not just simply the negative aspect of it, I want to look at ways in which a father can nurture a child. So we'll take a look at three things. One, ways in which a father can provoke their children. Second thing we'll take a look at, ways in which a father can nurture their child. Third thing we'll take a look at is ways in which a child can honor their parents. So I got a lot of stuff to cover. I'm going to go through these very quickly, very brief. They'll be up on the screen if you have more questions about them or if you can't write them fast enough. um, You can Facebook me or something like that. I'd be happy to give you my notes uh, if you weren't able to jot things down fast enough. But I'm going to go through these quickly. First of all, ways in which a father can provoke their child. So think of it this way. The word uh, provoke can also be understood as frustrate. So think of it this way. Um, If you were a gardener, all right, and your job was to cultivate the garden so that everything in that garden comes to full bloom and that if you have a really good garden, I have a good friend of mine, and he has a really, really good garden. Uh, his name is Mike, and I went over to his house a couple of weeks ago, uh, about a week ago, and they gave me tomatoes and onions and all this other stuff. Great, amazing, good stuff. So if you came over to my house, because I also had a garden over the summer, and my garden was was. was it was sorry, dude. It was really bad. I had tiny little tomatoes that were that big. Nothing was really all that great. Maybe a couple, like, zucchini. about it. Um, had a lot of kale. And uh, that was about it. And there was nothing I can actually give joyfully to my next-door neighbors. Like, I had this amazing vision perspective in my mind. Like, at the beginning of the summer, I'm like, I'm going to have this awesome garden. I'm going to be able to walk up to neighbors' houses and just, like, bring bushels of, like, just love. And just pour it all over them and be like, We love you in Jesus' name. Receive 100 zucchinis, right? That was not at all what happened. It was horrible. But here's my point. Think of a father. His role can either be a blessing over his family whereby he cultivates and brings out great fruitfulness in his family. Or he's a curse. Or he is one that frustrates. Or he basically brings about destruction and oppression of the family. On the flip side, it's one that is full of life and full of life-giving elements. Everybody enjoys it. The other, think of it this way, frustrating, like going over that garden and spraying Roundup on it. And, and again, these are like non-GMOCs, seeds, right? So even if you spray Roundup on them, they're gonna die, unlike, you know, we won't go with that angle. But the point of the matter is you can destroy your garden by spraying poison on it. And some fathers treat their families like that because of the way that they treat their kids. They frustrate them. They're not cultivating them. They're not nurturing them. And they bring about this constant hindrance or stuntedness within their growth. And so Paul is saying is that a gospel-shaped or Christ-shaped family is going to look different. So let's take a look at a handful of these things. One, that a father can provoke his children by disciplining them in anger. Disciplining them in anger. The idea of discipline is not to destroy them or to crush their spirit. It's to help redirect, really, their heart. It's to, it's to help them to understand who they are. It's not to crush them. Sometimes father, if a father uh, is angry with them, angry with the child because they're misbehaving or they need correction. If a father corrects a child while he's angry, while he's in sin, the irony is that he is saying, I've got to correct them because they're in sin. Yeah, but you're in sin too. first. And Jesus would say to you, first... Confess your sin first. Get the log out of your own eye. Then once you can see clearly, then you can help get the speck out of your brothers. In this case, your brother also happens to be your child. You're called to serve them. And sometimes fathers can provoke or frustrate their children by disciplining them in anger. Second thing is don't ever apologize. You want to frustrate your kids? Don't ever apologize. Take a posture of arrogance. Take a posture of always being right. If you do that, If you live that way, if you never adopt or accept or bring into your life a posture of humility that allows you the freedom to sit down with your children after you've sinned against them. And trust me, as a dad, i got two daughters. I've sinned against my kids many times by correcting them, by disciplining them when I'm I'm angry. And what happens when I do that is I sin against them. And the way that I deal with my sin is I need to sit down with them, sometimes in front of the whole family, and I need to confess my sin. Look, Daddy was wrong. I was really upset, and the way that I handled that was wrong, and I'm, I need to ask you to forgive me. I'm sorry for the way that I acted. That was, it was wrong. I humiliated you. I treated you in a way that was less than kind and respectful, and you deserve to be treated with respect, and Daddy wasn't that way to you. That's not how God treats Daddy. That's not how God treats you, and I'm sorry that I failed to properly model God in that circumstance. Please forgive me. When a father never apologizes, never is willing to man up, I'll just call it that, man up, it's easy to sort of play the role of saying, I am the sole authority, no one is greater than me, no one is higher than me, and if anybody ever crosses my authority, I lash out, I freak out, I become angry, and it may not be basically outright, it may oftentimes just be silent treatment. I'm not gonna talk to them. When a father does that, That creates an environment where frustration is prone to happen. The third thing is you overprotect. Overprotect. And again, there is a degree in which a father is responsible to protect responsible to safeguard, responsible to set up uh, blocks, uh, roadblocks around the household to protect the child. A father that doesn't protect his child is actually, neg- actually negligent, acting negligent. And a father is called to protect. But we can, we can all perhaps consider, we can all be prone to overprotect. In other words, the idea of micromanaging, controlling every little circumstance, every little detail of someone's life. I mean, we have governments like that in our world. We call them North Korea, Those are not places of freedom. Like, those are not places we look at, like, you know what, that's where I can, like, live out the golden dream. Like, no one looks at that as a positive thing. It's frustrating. It frustrates. It hinders. It restricts life and liveliness. And when a family or a mom or a dad uh, basically, overprotects what they're actually doing, and really, at the end of the day, every one of our actions communicates something. But when a father overprotects his family, micromanages his family, what he's actually doing is he's subtly training his children to value the greatest thing in their life is security, comfort. Those are the two greatest things: security, comfort, and control. And when I have security, when I have comfort, when I have control over my surroundings, I'm in the happy place. But when you begin to grow older, you begin to realize that there's a whole lot less in life that you have control over. And when a mom and dad is overprotecting and they communicate subtly by way of those actions that that's what's most important, they're not preparing them to live in this world that is full of vulnerabilities, that is full of areas that can oftentimes frustrate or break down or bring about all sorts of areas where our lives don't go according to our plan. What do we do then? And so... That can oftentimes lead to a level of frustration or provoking. Fourth thing is over-expect. Over-expect. And this is sort of the parent that oftentimes has very high demands, high expectations of their kids. Uh, they want them to excel, get straight A's all the time. They want them to excel within sports or excel in music or excel in some sort of art. Whatever the case is, a parent can overexpect something out of a kid. Now, is it good for a mom or dad to, you know, want their kids to get good grades so they can go to a good college so they can one day get a fairly decent job? It's totally fine. That's okay. There's no problem with that. But when a parent overexpects, expects when a parent drives, when a parent is constantly frustrated and you never really know, maybe some of you had parents like that. You never really knew if your mom or dad actually loved you or cared for you because your grades never measured up. You never practiced enough on your instrument. You never succeeded enough. You never, you know, scored enough goals to kind of get their affection to you. So literally you were always on this insecure roller coaster, never really certain where your standing was at. What parents do when they treat their kids this way is they actually train their kids that the most important thing in your life is performance. Affection approval comes from your performance. Do you see how this actually is absolutely contrary to the gospel? Because the gospel says it's not about your performance. It's about... Jesus' performance for you. God doesn't accept you based upon how good you are, how often you pray, how many people you've led to Jesus, how often you go to church, how involved you are in your church, how much money you give away. If you have a perspective in your mind that that's how God thinks of you, how secure will your walk with Jesus be? You will always be insecure. You will always never be certain whether or not God loves you, you will never be sure if God cares about you. You, will, you may even find yourselves in circumstances in your life where bad things are happening. Maybe you got fired from your job. Or maybe you got sick. You got you know, diagnosed with something. You might even begin to look at that and think, I, the reason why this happened to me is because God isn't is happy with me. He's judging me. And the gospel says, no. There is no condemnation to anyone who's in Christ. God will not judge you he judged his son for you Jesus lived a perfect life for you and what happens is when parents overexpect they frustrate their kids fifth they got to move on you never be generous never be generous only spend your money on your hobbies and your gadgets and always say no to your kids i mean just always invest money in yourself you know a lot of times dads can be like well i love my kids Follow the money. Where does the money lead you? If a dad has, you know, amazing gadgets, amazing toys, he's got a really nice boat, lots of, you know, motorcycles and all sorts of things, and his mom, the mom's driving around in a clunker car, and the kids are wearing, like, holy shoes, and they look nasty, you know know really what's most ultimate within that father's life. It's not the kids. It's not his wife. Follow the money. Follow the money. What you're actually identifying, what you're actually noticing is you have a, a father who is invested in himself, but not in his children. He's generous with himself, but not generous with those whom God places in his life to be generous with. How is God with generosity? Extremely generous. Why does God care about generosity within the family? Because God's generous. I said this last week, that one of the other important elements about all of this is so the reason why God cares about marriage is because if marriage is done right, Marriage becomes this unbelievably beautiful window through which Jesus is made much of. But the same is true with the family. Because think about it this way: a family is really one of the only places on planet earth that we can find some semblance of quote unquote unconditional love. Right? Because within a family, you know that you can kick your sibling in the face and you know, at three in the morning, and then at five clock at night in the afternoon they're going to be your best friend again it's unconditional love because there's a lot of acceptance and recognition and love within that family so it's the closest thing that we have on this planet to anything that resembles anything like unconditional love so here's my point god is generous and when family is done right Family becomes this unbelievably beautiful window that can portray the beauty of God of what unconditional love looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what acceptance looks like, what reconciliation looks like, what generosity looks like, even for those that maybe don't deserve it. So what he's saying here, what I'm describing here is that if you are never generous, you will actually end up frustrating your children. Sixth thing, don't have any fun. Don't have any fun. Have you ever met those dads that are always serious? Everything always just has to be in order, always wants to make sure that the kids look great, their you know, clothing is nicely pressed, and everything is just perfect, and their lawn is perfectly manicured, and everything in their life, they want to have control over everything. And there is no room, no margin to actually have fun. One of the most amazing things when I think about is God. Is God fun or is God a stern grandpa? God is a fun father. He loves and takes great delight in the joy of his kids. Some of you, that may be a novel concept for you. You've never thought about God as being an overjoyed, exuberantly happy, overflowing dad, father, who loves, takes great delight, who works, who angles his life, who does everything in his power for their deep joy in him. There's this passage in the Old Testament that describes God. It says that one day that we will see God, and it says that he will take great delight over us with loud singing. Have you ever thought about God actually singing a song over you? You should. That's the picture of God. Joyful, exuberant, happy, ecstatic, heaven. Is not going to be boring. Heaven is not going to be a place where everybody is melancholy. It's not going to be a place where people are sad. It will be a place of incredible celebration of incredible joy. I watched a news clip yesterday. I think it was on KSBY and it might have been up in North County. There was a, a, a gal. I think she was a cheerleader. I don't know how old she was. Maybe eight, nine, ten, or something like that. And uh, she was cheering. And her dad, I guess, was off at in, you know in the war. And he comes back and she didn't know that he was uh, gonna be coming back. And so they focused the camera on her face and then all of a sudden they announced the dad's name over the loudspeaker and this girl looks up and she's like looking around, scanning the entire you know, stadium for her dad and then she spots her dad, she just melts and they show this picture where they re- reunited, she hugs her dad and she can't even talk, the dad can't even talk, everybody's crying. It was so profound, I just in that moment thinking, we, I think we love pictures of that because we want to be in that story. And when we're not in that story, we want to be in that story. That is the story of the gospel. That is the story of our God. Our Father God who longs to welcome us, longs to rejoice over us, longs to sing over us. If your dad that does not know how to get on your hands and knees and sometimes even play dress up and even, look, i got two daughters. There's been times I've actually had to put on some weird clothes. <laughs> if you're a dad that does not know how to do that. And honestly, we still do that. My, both of my daughters are in, are in high school. And we still do crazy things. I'm not going to tell you everything. But we run around the house. Sometimes we get psycho crazy in our house. Because I love to just have fun with my daughters. I want them to grow up. I want them to leave one day to remember that. Growing up with my dad, he was fun. There are times that, yes, he can be stern. There are times, yes, that he can give me instruction and guidance and counsel. Yes, there are times when he's serious. But my dad was fun. I can remember my dad. I actually texted my dad yesterday. I was kind of thinking about this earlier when I was going back in my mind, thinking about the relationships that I've had, people that have helped shape my understanding of what fatherhood looks like. Um... I sent a couple texts yesterday. One of them was to my dad. And I just told my dad, I said, Dad, you know, I, I just want to say thank you. You in the way that you demonstrated fatherhood to my sister and I uh, helped form a foundation for me as to how to sacrificially give my life to my kids. Thank you for that. My dad texts me back right away, and my dad's a, a professor. He's a teacher down at UCI and a couple other colleges down there. And he just texts me back. He's like, "Dad, Brian, thank you so much. I mean, so much to me. I appreciate that." And it's, you know, and and the, and the reality is, I, I look at that. and I'm like, my, my dad was a, I, He taught me how to give my life away, to sacrifice myself to my kids. My dad wasn't a perfect dad. Um, my parents divorced, and I watched my dad as a single father raise my sister and I and put himself th- through school and work a very hard, long job and come home and burn spaghetti and try to feed it to us. And But everything he did, he did with a heart that just says, I love and my kids and I will sacrifice for them. And in the meantime, he was also able to do it in a fun way. When a father is never able to have fun, he frustrates his kids. Seventh thing is to just be emotionally absent. If you're a dad that does not know how to emotionally connect with your kids, you will end up frustrating your kids. You'll frustrate them. You're there physically, but you're not there emotionally. Some of you know exactly what this is like. Some of you have had that dad. He was there, maybe worked really hard, provided for the family, made sure that he had shoes, made sure that you had food, made sure that you had nice you know, shelter over your head, but emotionally he was very distant, very disconnected. And the point that I would make is that that actually leads and brings about frustration. What's absolutely amazing to me is I've talked with ladies who are in their you know, 20s and 30s and 40s. And they've actually told me I've ne- I never have a memory of my dad telling me that he loves me. And that's, that's mind-boggling to me. I didn't have that dad. In fact, almost to the opposite, Like my, my dad smothers me with love. I still see him this day and just like kisses my neck. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's cool. Like I'm, I'm 40, 43 years old now, you know, it's all good. And, but I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I rejoice in the fact that he like does that. loves loves that. But it makes me sad to think, like, I would never want my kids to grow up not hearing from me. I love them. I love you. You are beautiful in my eyes. And you know, the reality is, is that oftentimes fathers can be very emotionally absent or disconnected. And oftentimes what happens is they spend their time within their hobbies, within the world of their gadgets, within the world that they feel like they can control. And oftentimes it's because they just don't know how to connect. Um, I actually read a really interesting quote, um, next slide, by the comedian Stephen Colbert, which again, he's obviously writing this in great irony, but I just want you to listen to it because in some ways it captures exactly what I just said right here. Just listen to what he says. A father has to be a provider, a teacher, a role model, but most importantly, a distant authority figure who can never be pleased. Otherwise, how will children ever understand the concept of God? That's powerful. Like when I read that, I was like, that's everything that I'm trying to say, but the inverse, What I'm saying is that when a father is emotionally connected, when a father is generous, when the father is kind, when a father knows how to be able to lay down discipline but do it in a way that's loving and kind, that is a window to who God is. But what he's saying is true too. That when a father doesn't do that, when he's emotionally disconnected, that's a window into who God is too. It's a false window. It's a stained window. It's a broken window. It's a shattered window. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes... As I mentioned earlier and asked earlier, when you think of the name dad or the word dad, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? What images do you have? What emotions does it conjure up? I want to move on. And the next thing I want you to think about is, I heard someone kind of describe it this way. It's a really good way to think of it is our lives in a lot of ways, uh, parenting is kind of like deposits and withdrawals. Uh, I said this, that think of parenting like a bank account. Encouragement is a deposit. Criticism is a withdrawal. You will provoke your, ch- your, ch- your children to anger if you make uh, far more withdrawals than you do deposits. So the idea is, is that if you're always criticizing them or backing down on them or being more generous with yourself rather than being generous with them or more disconnected with them and more connected with your own types of things, those are all withdrawals. And if there are more withdrawals than there are actual um, deposits, what you will end up doing is you will actually bring about frustration and brokenness within the family. Um, I want to move on to some a little bit more positive things. So I just want you to think about this as we move on. I want to look at some ways in which fathers can actually nurture their children. So again, think about this word cultivate, in which they can cultivate like a garden their children. So one, love Jesus. Love Jesus. Dads, moms, the most important thing that you can do in your family is love Jesus. That means love him above and beyond all other things. Don't make your children little gods. I think one of the reasons why oftentimes parents struggle with their kids is because they have children as a means of which to satisfy them. They're the ones that bring them joy. They're the ones that bring them happiness. And so when it comes to having to discipline them, there's always this fear that if I discipline them too much, then my kids will turn their back on me. And if they turn their back on me, then where's my God? Where's my source of joy and my source of comfort? And the gospel comes back and says, well, your source of joy and comfort is with Jesus. Jesus has to be that. Make Jesus central. And this also begins to play itself out in how you engage what Jesus loves. Not only love Jesus, but love what Jesus loves. Love his church. Love his body. I was reading an article this past week, and in the article it was kind of describing how um, when a child, if a child ever comes to a point in a family where the child maybe looks to mom or dad, and they're like, hey mom, what are we doing Sunday? In the article it says, battle's over. Your kids don't even know what Sundays are for. You've set a culture in their lives where Sundays, sometimes maybe for breakfast, sometimes maybe for soccer games, sometimes maybe for camping, sometimes maybe for go, going away to grandma's house, sometimes maybe for weddings, sometimes, if nothing else is happening, maybe, maybe, every blue moon, church. You're setting a standard for them that, What Jesus loves is not that important. One of the greatest things, dads, that you can do for your children is lead the family to Jesus. Help them to see the beauty, the greatness, the love, the kindness, the goodness of Jesus. Lead them to love what Jesus loves, his church. Find ways to not just simply be on the outskirts of the church, but be involved in the church. Do it with the family, bring them into it because this is what Jesus loves. Second thing is that listen to your children, they're little people. They have minds. They think. They reason. Especially when they're, when they're really young, there's not a lot that they reason with. So there's some, there are certain things that you can just say, don't do this. And they've just got to do it because they're not going to even understand it anyhow, even if you can communicate it to them. But the older they get, the more they need to be instructed. So the older they get, when you set up a boundary and you say, don't cross that boundary, you, you need to be better at instructing them. Here's why we don't want you to cross this boundary because there's certain dangers or certain things. Uh, you gotta be able to describe it to them. And then let them talk. Let them ask questions. You know, for me, as, as a dad, um, maybe it's just kind of me confessing my own sins to you guys, but the reality is, as, as a pastor, I speak for a living. And if I carry that same posture in my home and I just speak for a living in my home but never give an opportunity to listen, and I, and I do do that. That's one of my sins. It's one of the things that I fail in as a father. And if I don't listen to my kids and let them tell me what's frustrating to them or what's hurting them or what's causing pain or angst in their souls, then, and I just speak into them, I'm actually provoking and frustrating them. So I need to listen to them. So listen. Third thing, eat together. This sounds really practical, but the reality is, is that just have a meal together. Food is not just simply to fuel yourself, it's also for fellowship. Um, there's an ancient word in the Greek that's the word companion. And the word companion actually comes from a composite of two Greek words, come, pan, and the idea is come is with, pan is the ancient word for bread. It's the idea of people sitting down, breaking bread with each other, and when you do that, you become, there's a bond that happens, something that takes place, something that's forged over breaking bread together, getting your hands dirty from ribs, or doing something together as a family that involves food there's just something that's beautiful that arises out of that. And the Bible describes this. I think it's one of the reasons why, perhaps, even in the, uh, at the end of the book, it describes us coming together with King Jesus, our Heavenly Father, God of creator of all things, and we will have a feast. God will set a feast for us, and we will be at that dinner table. It's absolutely amazing that God actually cares about food. And I realize in a lot of ways, we live in a culture that's very fast-paced, My wife and I have a very, you know, we've got a lot of stuff in our lives. But one of the things that we decided, and it comes from a decision, you have to make the decision. For some of you, a lot of you guys are students. And for a lot of you, you have a very busy life. And your schedules might not necessarily lead you to sit down and actually having dinner or meals with your roommates. And the point is that one of these days you're going to get married. Because statistically you will all at one point get married. And unless you learn how to break the cycle of never sitting down, having a meal with someone, and learn how to move into a new cycle whereby having a meal with someone, with your family, is important. It's Christ-centered. Then you miss out on many opportunities of being able to pour into your children and cultivate them and nurture them. Uh, Fourthly, uh, discipline for behavior. Behavior. The idea that he says to raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The word discipline um, can also involve this idea of, of guidance and coaching and leading. It's the idea of, of, of disciplining their behavior. Now, the goal is, is to not just simply get them to act good. It's to get them to identify their heart. To understand, because all behavior actually arises out of our heart. In other words, what needs to really take place is the root causal issue first oftentimes as parents we can just simply look at the fruit of someone's life so it's kind of like going out in your backyard and you see a bunch of weeds and like i can get rid of the weeds so you you know bring out the lawn mower and you set up a certain height and you mow the lawn you mow the weeds you haven't really actually eradicated the weeds you just simply mowed them down that's why two weeks later the weeds are still there because you haven't really pulled them at the root so the goal and the aim of a parent is to help lead and guide and coach and direct the, this, uh, the behavior of a child by actually going to the heart of that child. Fifthly, instruct for belief. So think of it this way. All parents, their job is to, in, to give their children a Christian education. We have a culture in a lot of ways that's sort of been built around the concept of finding professionals to educate our children. We see this even within the larger body of culture at large, but we also see this happen in a lot of ways within the church. You know, we hire certain people that are professional to basically take care of our kids. We have a, you know, we hire a youth leader or hire a junior high pastor or hire a children's ministry director. And the ironic thing is that we actually have all of those people as a part of our church. But their job is to not simply be the end all of educating your children in the ways of God. They're actually there to help you, moms or dads, to help educate your children. God has placed you in that unique place to bring education of Jesus into their lives. The next thing is finished with this is sixthly, be reconciled to your kids. Malachi chapter six, four, verse six, describes a time when John the Baptist is gonna come, he's gonna point people to Jesus. And there's a passage in the latter part of the book of Malachi and also the first part of the book of Luke where it says that one of the consequences or effects, I should say, of the preaching of this message that leads to Jesus is that the hearts of the fathers will return to their children and the hearts of the children will return back to their fathers. In other words, reconciliation will take place. Do you know that God cares about reconciliation? That many of the relationships that we have in our lives or the dysfunctionality or the brokenness that we have in our lives or the feelings of inadequacies, or inadequacies that we have in our lives or oftentimes the feelings of insecurity that we have are oftentimes rooted back to some form of a relationship that has dissolved or broken. Do you know that God cares about that? That the gospel truly wants to Transform that and to undo that and to change that and to reshape that, and that there actually is hope. This is the God that we have. And the point of the matter is that if we have a God that conquered the greatest enemy of all, death, it is the greatest enemy of all. That if He conquered death, how much more can He give us energy and power to conquer things in terms of a death and a relationship? This is the heart of the gospel reconciliation. I want to finish with some final thoughts with regard to ways in which children can honor their parents. First of which is obey their parents. Now, I need to uh, put some parameters on this because I think the text imposes these as well. Um, Obey. The word obey or the word children here um, in this particular two texts um, oftentimes uh, identifies young children. So young children are required to obey their moms and dads. Um, If you're 43 years old and you're living on your own, you are not required to obey your mom and dad. Just FYI. You're not, because your mom and dad might actually be giving you really horrible advice. And if you're like straightjacket and it's like, well, the Bible says I must obey my children. My, my mom and dad, and you're like 43 years old, and your mom and dad is like a drug addict, and they're like giving you bad advice, and you're like, I gotta obey it. That's not at all what the text is saying. If you're a little kid and you're living at home, you're to obey your mom and dad. But, again, Paul adds this instruction in the Lord. Jesus He's part of this whole thing. If you're living at home, all right, let's say you're 23 years old, all right, you're living at home, don't have a job still sleeping in your you know, Star Wars pajamas, and mom is kind of making you breakfast every morning, tucks you in at night, um, you, you are required to some degree, some level, o- obey. You're, you're living under the jurisdiction of, of home. I mean, it's, it's just part of the actual role of responsibility and relationship. So obedience is an important element. Now, again, with its limits. Uh, the second thing is respect your parents. Respect your parents. And this is the idea of, of honoring. How do we honor our parents? You respect them. Think about ways in which you can communicate to them. Because you don't always have to obey them in everything. Because some of them might actually give you bad advice. You don't have to trust them in everything. Because some of them are untrustworthy. But you can respect them. And there's ways to respect them. Like I said earlier, I, I, I called my dad. I texted my dad yesterday, I should say. I didn't call him. I texted him yesterday. I called him today. And just told him, thank you. That honored him. And there's ways that we can think about honoring our parents. But one of the reasons why we oftentimes can't, because some of us right now, if you were to think about ways, what are some things in your parents' life, your mom or your dad, because maybe you didn't have a dad, so there's maybe not that much you even know about your dad that you can actually show honor to him because you just don't know him, lack of information. But you have a mom or a guardian or a grandma or someone in your life that you can. But let's say you can't. Let's say they're, they're there in your life, And maybe they did some good things, but at some point you are not free, you're not capable, you're not able to actually honor them because, which leads to the third and final thing, one of the ways in which you can honor them is you forgive them. One of the reasons why we can't forgive them is because we have held them up too high in our our mind. And what we've done is what the Bible describes is we made them an idol. Now here's an interesting thing. When you're a child, when you're a real child, a parent, a mom and dad, it's to function in some ways as a picture of God. Because they are a picture of ultimate authority, right? They are the first primary authority figures in that life. They are the ones that give and show and demonstrate unconditional love. In other words, they are to demonstrate love for that child in spite of the fact whether or not they you know, soiled their diapers or messed up or crammed in the walls or did something bad. They will always be brought back to showing demonstrating love no matter how frail it may be. But oftentimes, the goal of every parent is to raise that child up so that Jesus becomes ultimate, and they're not. And for some kids, they fail to see the transition, and they still hold their mom and dad responsible for being the source of their comfort, for being the source of their approval, for being the source of their affection, for being the source of their comfort. And when mom or dad have failed you because they haven't approved you rightly, they haven't loved you unconditionally the way that you deserve, or you sure uh, that you feel that like you sh- uh, deserve, or they haven't been able to show you the kindness and the affection that you want, what happens is that you can take someone that you idolize And it transitions into you demonizing them. Oftentimes we demonize those whom we idolize. And what happens now is you are not free. You are bound. You're not free to love them. You're not free to honor them. You're not free to speak good, kind words on their behalf. You're not free to just call them up. You're not free to go out and have dinner with them. You're not free to invite them to your house for a meal. You're not free to just let them... Have fun with you, because you are bound by pain, hurt, sorrow, anger, vengeance, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And what the gospel comes to us and says, "There's a way to be free. There's a way to be free, and that freedom comes through knowing that we have even a greater father, that our fathers, our moms, our dads, that were to be this picture of unconditional love yes, they failed you. And when they failed you, you went down with that ship. You melted, you deconstructed with that ship. And now you're broken. But there's a way to be remade. If you see the true high resolution picture of the true father who shows true unconditional love to you. You don't deserve it. He just gives it to you freely at great expense to himself upon his own son for you. To the degree that you see that, that will set you free. It will change you so that now the gospel frees you so that rather than, say, for example, if you're a child, you're looking at your parent for approval, for affection, and now they're not giving it to you. But now that you have your heart satisfied by the approval of the true father, The one opinion in the entire universe that really matters is God's. And God's spoken word over you is I love you. To the degree that that melts your heart, captures your soul. You are now free to love your father or your mother who failed you. Because you're not loving them looking for something in return. You're loving them because of what God has already given to you. You're free. The gospel has liberated you. This is why we have an amazing God. I want to invite you into that. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And what I want to do right now, because I realize in a lot of ways this can be heavy stuff. All right, if it's your first time here to Calvary Slow, welcome to Calvary Slow. (sighs) But the really, really good news, the really good news is that you can be free. That Jesus wants to liberate you in the love that he puts on public display of his Father for you. That liberates you. That allows you to be the dad that you can be to your kids. That actually frees you. So you can actually apologize to your kids because you know what? Your reputation is not bound up in their opinion of you. That's why sometimes dads might not actually humble themselves to the kids. They're like, well, if my kids see I'm weak, then what type of a message I send to them? I love to ask the question like, the picture of God. What's the greatest picture of God? What led you to God? Was it the fact that you saw him as this mighty warrior with a sword in hand, he's about ready to crush you? Or was it the fact that you saw God vulnerable for you? That melted you. And when a child can see you as a dad vulnerable and weak because your identity is not wrapped up in their opinion of you, your identity is wrapped up in God's opinion of you and his opinion of you is you are loved in Christ now you're free I want to do something I want to have all of us stand here's what I want to do I want to pray for all of us um, sometimes they carry be slow as a family uh, you got to reach out and touch each other so why don't you reach across, put your arm on someone's shoulder put your arm around them hold the hand if you want it's fine it doesn't matter we're family here and, and I, I want to pray for all of us here because at the end of the day, every single one of us our children. Every single one of us, to some degree, have been brought into this relationship that can be radically toxic or radically liberating, all based upon your posture before the gospel. And I'm going to pray for us. Some of you are dads. Some of you are going to be dads. I'm going to pray for you, the rest of you men, that one of these days when God allows you and blesses you as a dad, that your fatherhood would be one that actually leads to a life of cultivating blessing. So I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll sing a song, partake of communion, confess sin. If you're here this morning, you have prayer, uh, need for prayer for anything at all that's going on in your life—broken relationships, broken body, you're sick, you need healing. We'll have some people off over by the cross to pray for you. So, God, right now, thank you for Jesus and what He's demonstrated for us. God, that it's on behalf of His perfection in our place, on our behalf, that we're accepted. Unconditional love God has been given to us it's not conditioned, it's not based upon how well we perform, we are shown love because you are lovely so God I pray for every man in here that either is a dad right now or one day will be a dad God I pray that you would help them to be radically moved and changed and transformed by this gospel we proclaim let that change them so that one of these days when they have children or if they have children right now or if they've got children that are already grown and maybe there's ways in which they can bring restoration in their lives. God, I pray that they would do that and wear that role in a way not to earn your favor but because they already have your favor and because they want to use that platform, that stage, that image as a way of making much of Jesus. God, in order to do that, we've got to be liberated. We've got to be set free. So set people free here right now. Let's sing.